Well, good evening. If you'd like to take out your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 4, I invite you to turn there with me, please, if you would, please. Philippians chapter 4. I asked nicely. I said, please, twice. Uh, if you'll turn to Philippians, then you'll be ready for our lesson tonight, and virtually the entire lesson is going to be taken from Philippians chapters 3 and 4. So even if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to use one of the ones that's provided for you there in the pew, uh, I think that will be beneficial to you as we think about and consider some things this evening. The holiday season is upon us. It's that time of year again. And studies show uh, that the time of year that people are the happiest, the most contented, if you had to guess, what time of year would you say that was? Um, I think maybe we're conditioned by, you know, it's a wonderful life and movies like that, that people are just down and in the dumps and depressed around the holidays. Studies actually show it's exactly the opposite. The time of year where people are the happiest, the most content is from the end of October to the middle of January, exactly laying over that holiday season. And the reason that's given for this by researchers, and we're talking about secular research here, not connected to Christianity, is that's when people get the most stuff coming into their lives. That's physical things, gifts and the like, but also friends and family. They get Christmas bonuses. They get time off from work. But if you had to guess when people are the least content and the most unhappy, and there are a number of metrics for that, including suicide and other things, studies show that the time people are the least happy is directly after the holiday season from the middle of January to the end of February. Because that's when the friends and family all go home. That's when they have to go, we have to go back to work. That's when the newness of the presence has worn off. The bonuses have all been spent. And we're back to the daily grind of real life. And I think that really illustrates the attitude of our modern society, especially in our society as Americans with so much wealth, with so many things, with so much comfort. Our happiness too often is directly based on the amount of stuff we receive and the things that happen to us as we drift along life's way. And if that flow of stuff ever stops, if we're faced with difficulty and hardship and bad circumstances, then we cannot possibly be content or happy. Uh, several people have asked me uh, after the lesson last week to expand on the lesson from Sunday morning, uh, where at the end of that lesson, I suggested the value of reading through Philippians chapters 3 and 4. And I strongly suggested that if you want to see what contentment looks like in a really practical way, look in Philippians chapter 3 and 4. So that's what we're going to do this evening. And to begin, just very quickly, I want to give us a... Uh, a 30,000-foot view of what we talked about last time. And then tonight what we're going to do is kind of approach this from a negative standpoint that turns positive. I want to talk about some contentment killers, some things that destroy our contentment where we're not able to have the joy and peace in Christ that we are promised as Christians. So from last week, uh, we talked about how we might learn contentment, and that's what Paul suggests in Philippians chapter 4. And I suggested there are a number of things that the Bible suggests. We must learn to divorce our attitude from our circumstances. The American way is, as long as I have enough good things and stuff coming into my life, I'm going to be content. I'm going to have joy. But that is not the way of Christianity. That's not the way of Christ. 
Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. For those of you who were here last week, what was the secret? What was the one thing that we've got to have if we're going to be content? He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is this wholehearted devotion to and focus on Christ that allows us to be content. And without that, true contentment is never really possible. As as Weist says, Paul was independent of circumstances because he was dependent on Christ. So we must learn to divorce our attitude from our circumstances and marry that attitude, our outlook on life, to Christ and our relationship with him. And if my relationship with Christ is what it ought to be, if I know who I am and where I'm going in this life, then I can find contentment, whatever state I am in, whether I'm abounding or abased, whether I'm suffering need or I'm full and, and, uh, full and have all things. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, I encourage you to memorize, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. So in Christ we can find contentment. But what does that look like practically? Well, that is our lesson for this evening as we consider Philippians chapters 3 and 4 and some contentment killers. Let's go to the end of chapter 4 to begin with, or at least toward the end. Um, In verse 9 of Philippians chapter 4, this is what Paul says. Just before he talks about his personal contentment, he says this. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. You will have peace. You will have contentment if you imitate me and do the things that I do. Imitate me to have my peace, he says. And that peace is described beginning in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me is flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, in whatever state I am, to be content. So what was it that Paul did in order to have this contentment? Well, from the positive perspective, before we get to the knife out and start talking about discontentment and contentment killers, There are four things that are earlier in chapters 3 and 4 that we see Paul doing that led ultimately for him to be able to say, imitate me, do what I do, and you too can be content. We talked about this at the very end of uh, our lesson last week. Number one, placing your confidence in Christ. That's where your confidence has to be. Number two, reaching forward toward the goal and having that focus on eternity and making it to heaven. Number three, finding your home and hope in heaven that your citizenship is already there. And number four, guarding your mind and thoughts through prayer and meditation with thanksgiving uh, as we read about in the fourth chapter, verses four through eight. So that's in the positive. But here's what I want us to do. We're going to read each of these sections. And as we read, I want you to think about the negative. What are the things that I can allow into my life that rob me of the the contentment that God promises and that Paul says that we can have um, if we imitate him as he imitates Christ. So that's what we're going to do. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 11 together. And your job as we read is to say, what's the contentment killer? What keeps us from being content? Verse 1. 
of chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, That's just like a preacher. He says, finally, when he's only halfway through the book, and he's already mentioned rejoicing eight times, and he says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious. Well, that's like a preacher also, isn't it? Now, you need to hear this. I'm going to say the same thing over and over. But for you, it is safe. This is for your benefit. Verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Why? Because I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I could have had confidence in the flesh. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So positively, he says, if you want to be content, you have to place your confidence in Christ. So what then is is our contentment killer? Well, it's misplaced confidence. Instead of in Christ, if you put your confidence in the flesh, you cannot be and never will be truly content. What kind of fleshly things? Let's see if we can be specific and practical. Putting your confidence in the flesh... If I make more money, then I'll be content. Uh, How much more? Well, more than I'm making now. That's always the answer to that question, right? If I have more fun, I'll be content. How much fun? Well, if I can have it uh, every weekend, that's a start. And if not that, then every day. But if I can have more fun than I'm having now, then I'll be content. I just need to go on another trip. I love to travel. Y'all know how much I love to travel. But I can't find my contentment just traveling because... Well, I'm not independently wealthy. I can't travel all the time. But even if I did, that's false confidence. That wouldn't bring contentment. If only I looked better. If only I felt better. If only I can get my kids or my grandkids to be successful and happy in their lives. If only I had a a better house or a more fulfilling job that I enjoyed more. If only I could date or marry the right person. If only I had the right group of friends. All of these things are put in confidence in the flesh to bring about contentment. But notice the common denominator with all of those things. None of those things in and of themselves are wrong. But they're not going to bring us lasting joy if we're relying on those sorts of changing circumstances to fulfill our joy and contentment. Now, we think about confidence in the flesh... All of those things that I've just mentioned weren't really what the Apostle Paul was talking about. What is the specific confidence in the flesh to which Paul is referring? Well, it's the traditions and laws of Judaism. And and just like with the things that I mentioned, 
Paul's adherence, Saul at the time, his adherence to the law of Moses, was that wrong? No, certainly not before Christ came and Christ was crucified. He should have adhered to the law. And yet his confidence in those things outside of Christ would never bring him true joy and contentment. What's the application for us? Well, we're not tempted to go back into Judaism. Raise your hand if you're tempted to go back into Judaism. No, no, that's not, that's not our issue. So what's the application? Well, maybe there is the temptation to go back into the former life. I've been a Christian for a while now. And here I am, I have Christ, I have all of these things, and yet the pullback of the flesh, I've supposed, supposedly crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, but the pull of that flesh is so strong that I want to go back into that life. And sometimes the devil, devil whispers into our ears, it'll be different this time. If you went back into it, everything would work out, everything would be great. But the appeal of the flesh of our former life will never fulfill for us what we can find and have in Jesus Christ. And maybe that's physical family, maybe that's the life of the party, whatever it was where we used to put our confidence in those things. True joy is in Christ, but there will be those who are trying to drag us back away from Christ. Whatever it is, the flesh can never fulfill our needs to where we can fully and totally, totally be content. I, I ran across this quote by uh, C.S. Lewis, and uh, originally it was in the sermon that I preached last week, but I, I, uh, I ran out of space, had to cut it out. And that's the great thing about doing a part two. You get to put some really good stuff back in. So I found this quote from C.S. Lewis, and I, I think it's very thought-provoking. Would you read this with me? Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Uh, men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. And that makes perfect sense whether you believe in God or not, right? How could I have a desire for something that doesn't exist? He goes on to say, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I believe that to be true, don't you? We hunger and thirst for righteousness as Christians. We are clothed with righteousness. God provides us shelter in the time of storm. And all of these desires and needs that we have in this life are just imitations and shadows of the full and total need we have for God. You know, a lot of people talk about that we all have a God-sized hole in our heart. What they're really saying is we have a desire for something that only God can fulfill. And that in and of itself is an evidence for God. And so he, he finishes this quote by saying this. If that is so, and I believe it is, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. We should be thankful for them. They come from God. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else 
of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. There are so many good things in this life, so many good things that we have to enjoy. And God tells us in a number of places in the Scripture, going all the way back to the creation in the garden and coming up to Solomon and the things that he says, even the things that Jesus says in the Gospels, even some concepts in the epistles that we are to enjoy the things of this life. And it is good when you look good and you feel good and you enjoy things in this life. But if we're looking to find contentment in those things, it's always going to fall short. And I believe that's exactly what Paul was saying. If uh, you go and, and read again with me in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content, in verse 11. Keep reading in verse 12. For I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. How? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, he says, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. You supported my needs. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He shows a thankfulness for what has been given to him, but at the same time he reminds the brethren in Philippi, thank you for what you did, thank you for what you sent, I'm so grateful for it, but I don't want you to think that that was what it's all about. I don't want you to think that I had to have that in order to be content. I am content with the gift that I needed and I'm grateful for it, and I would have been content if I had never received the gift as well. Now, why did he do that? Why, why did he say this to them? Specifically, that part about, I know uh, how to be abased and I know how to abound. He's not abounding much right now, right? He's, he's hungry. He's suffering need. But what were the circumstances for the brethren in Philippi? You thought about that? The brethren in Philippi were probably very wealthy. All the converts that we meet from there in the book of Acts are wealthy. The city itself is a Roman colony which lended itself to folks who would have been more well-off than the general population. Paul is currently poor. They're probably currently rich. And his point to them is, either way, you've got to be content. The flesh has little to do with this. Whether you're poor like me or rich like you, you can't put your confidence in the flesh. Okay, now what's the next thing that we see? Reaching forward to the goal, uh, let's read verses 12 through 16, and I think we see that the uh, contentment killer in this section is that there is baggage from the past while we're reaching forward to the goal. Begin reading in verse 12 down through verse 16. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. 
Brethren, I, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, raise your hand if you're mature. Well, if you raise your hand, I don't know if that counts, right? No, you've got to be humble in order to be mature. Mature in faith, let us have this mind, this mind of pressing toward the goal. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Paul's focus was always on reaching the goal, pressing toward that goal. But along the way, there was some baggage from the past that he has to let go in order to look forward to the goal. And we see some of these things mentioned in the text that give us some clues as to what some of these contentment killers could be. And before I go through those things in the text, let me just acknowledge something. Some of us here have more history and baggage than others. Some of us here have been through some truly terrible things. A betrayal by a family member or in some ways worse by a, a brother or sister in Christ. Unfair treatment at our job that perhaps led to us even losing our employment. Maybe it's something even more traumatic than that, like an experience that we had uh, in the military, perhaps. And I want you to know that I am not minimizing any of those things, but hear me clearly. If they kill our commitment, contentment, if they kill our contentment, it means that we've not fully let those things go. And they will kill our contentment if we define our lives and who we are by those things, those things that happened in the past, where we've been instead of where we're going. And if our eye is constantly in the rearview mirror about the things that have happened in the past, how can we see clearly to the future and where we're going in heaven? And Paul, I think, hits upon some of the difficulties that we might have with the past. In verse 2 of chapter 3, for example, he talks about bad experiences with other people, even those who are Christians, maybe especially those who are Christians. He calls them dogs and evil workers and the mutilation. You've got to be beware of these people. And they've been a thorn in the side of Paul for a long time. Be aware of that, and yet those bad experiences cannot define our relationship with, with all people. They certainly cannot define our relationship with Christ, and we must let that baggage go. Whatever is required of us through prayer, through study, through counseling, however we need to get past those things. And, and maybe, perhaps, uh, as we look there in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3, as we read a moment ago, perhaps it's our past understanding. Perhaps it's past traditions or doctrine or even just a past stage of life. And we're hung up on where we used to be and who we used to be. And things have changed now from, from what we would prefer we see that, of course, in the changes of the stage of life, perhaps when the kids leave the house and, and we love being a parent and we tied our whole identity into who we were as a parent and now they're gone and we're stuck back there in the past, not in who I am in Christ, 
but that I've lost my identity as a parent or whatever the case might be. We have to let go and get past that baggage or it will kill our contentment. Maybe in verse 6 he talks about persecuting the church. Maybe for us the baggage from the past is past sins. Maybe it's past embarrassments. And these are things that we've supposedly repented of and, and been forgiven of. And yet, yet who we are today is shaped and defined by those things in a negative way. Where we look at ourselves, not even the way other people look at us, but we look at ourselves as a sinner condemned unclean instead of a sinner redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And even if Christ tells us that we are forgiven, somehow we think we have the right to say, no, I can't forgive myself. And if we find ourselves in that situation, we will never have joy and contentment in our lives because of this baggage from the past. Looking back on who we were or what we could have been or what we wish we would have done can destroy who we are and who we are trying to be. And we don't just bury those things. Please don't misunderstand me. Uh, when I say forget, uh, I don't mean that we just bury those things deep down inside where no one can ever see. But we need to work through them in Christ in order to move past them so that we might reach forward toward the goal. And, and this is something, uh, this last one I think is something that maybe older Christians sometimes struggle with. I think sometimes our baggage from the past is not all the bad things that happened, but all the good things that happened. Maybe even our past successes, our past victories, even our past service in the Lord's kingdom or in the Lord's church. I know of older Christians that I could call by name, um, and I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of one in particular who is not a member here who has done so much good for the Lord over the course of this person's life, so much good for the Lord, and yet now in the twilight, they're the least content that I've ever seen them in my lifetime because they've stopped working. They've stopped pressing toward the goal. They're resting on their laurels, and they've become a malcontent in many ways, uh, looking at everything that's wrong with everybody else because it's not being done the way they would have done it and the way they did it, even in their fateful service. All of these things, and I hope we're being practical enough, all of this baggage from the past is a contentment killer, and we will never have the joy that God says that we can have if we allow these things to cloud our judgment. Okay? And then if we look uh, just a little bit further in verses 17 through uh, chapter 4 and verse 3, let's read this together and tell me what the contentment killer is. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And yet the contrast in verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things for, to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast 
in the Lord beloved. And he goes on to talk in verses 2 and 3 of folks whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we find our home and we find our hope in heaven. What's the contentment killer? Well, obviously it's the opposite, right? If we're making this world our home and making this world our hope, it will, con- it will kill our contentment. And there are lots of applications we could make to that. I think sometimes I think sometimes a fear of death is the manifestation of this contentment killer. Uh, I was at a funeral recently, and this was a quote that I heard by one of the ministers. Um, and I've been thinking about it ever since I heard it. He said, we spend, sometimes we spend more time praying to keep people out of heaven than we do praying to keep people out of hell. By that he meant, sometimes we spend all of our time praying for faithful Christians. Faithful Christians who, by all accounts, now God's the judge, not us, you understand that. Faithful Christians who, by all accounts, are just, when they pass from this life, they're going to go and be with the Lord, awaiting the judgment day and entrance into heaven someday. And we pray for them and that their physical health might be restored, and we spend more time doing that than we do praying for those who are outside of Christ, who if they were to die today or tomorrow, would not have that same joy and hope. That could be a manifestation of this kind of contentment killer. I I love what he says. uh, I love what he says here in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are eagerly waiting for the Lord, anticipating heaven with joy. Does that describe us, or are we more comfortable here? Maybe materialism is the uh, application, that we are tearing down our barns to build bigger barns because this world is our home. We sing it all the time. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Are we living that as we should? And then finally... Guarding your mind and thoughts through prayer and meditation is how we become content. What is the contentment killer in verses 4 through 8? Read that with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness, your meekness be made known to all men. The Lord is at hand. He's close. He's near. Be anxious for really big, important things. No. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And if you do, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate, dwell, live. Your mind lives on these things. And so our mind as Christians is guarded by going to God in prayer with thanksgiving and meditating on the things of God and the things that are good. So if that is how we have contentment, what's the contentment killer? Well, he says, be anxious for nothing. And sometimes we're, we're anxious for a lot of things. 
Anxieties about the future is sometimes the biggest contentment killer there is. And Paul emphasizes the need for a better perspective on this. There are lots and lots of bad things that could happen. There are lots and lots of bad things that could happen when we walk through this door. But are we anxious and worried about those things? Sometimes, perhaps, we look at worry and we miss the primary cause of worry. What's the main cause of worry? Maybe you say, well, it's those things that happen to us, and bad things happen, and it causes us to worry. I would suggest that that's not the case at all. It is not the things that that happen to us that cause us to worry. Maybe those things don't help, but that's not really worry. Worry comes, anxiety comes from those things that might happen to us, that could happen to us. It's not about the realized problems of today. Generally, we do a pretty good job taking care of those. It is about the potential problems of tomorrow that causes our anxiety. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34, Jesus says, after he has commanded multiple times not to worry, he says, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Um, I've uh, said this multiple times from the pulpit and in Bible classes, but I'm going to say it again. Worry is all about what's potentially wrong, what could go wrong, and that's what makes thanksgiving and prayer so effective when it comes to combating this anxiety and worry. Thanksgiving is just the opposite of worry. Worry is about what's potentially wrong. Thanksgiving is about what's actually right, what has actually happened that is good and right. And there is always something for us to be thankful for. And if we find this attitude where we go to God in prayer about the things that are wrong in our lives, the things we need help with, the things we have anxiety about, if we go to God with those things, with thanksgiving, with an attitude of of gratitude for what He has done, And then our focus is not on all the bad things, on the negative things, but on the things that are good. That's where our mind dwells. That's what we meditate on. Then we have destroyed any fertile ground for worry and anxiety in our life. Uh, You guys know that I follow sports. Is that surprising? I follow sports. You know, based on social media, I'm, I, I used to be a much bigger fan of the NBA uh, than I am now. Maybe it corresponds with the Spurs not being any good anymore. That's probably part of the problem. But uh, on social media, I, I get a lot of posts from different famous athletes and so forth. And you know the most, this is, this is a very um, technical scientific study based on my observation. The most discontent professional athletes seem to be basketball and professional basketball players to me. They are always complaining. Everything is a slight. They're always wanting to go to the next team where they're going to be happy. And we look at that as normal citizens of the world and we say they make millions of dollars working by playing a game They stay in the best hotels, they eat the best food, they have the best medical care, all of these things. How could they be unhappy? How could they be discontent? Well, we've fallen into that trap of of equating circumstances with happiness and contentment, haven't we? And how many people around the world would look at our lives and say the same thing? They make thousands of dollars. They're working in an office that has A.C. and heat. 
They're sleeping in a comfortable bed in their multi-room house. They have safe food and warm water to shower in. They have access to life-saving prescriptions and doctors. How could those people not be content and happy? Well, it's not ultimately about our circumstances, but gratitude. Gratitude for the things God has given us. If we have a perspective to be grateful for those things, then it is much more likely that we will be gratitude and prayer and a positive outlook. So we have these contentment killers. But again, it comes back to the positive things, that we place our confidence in Christ. Do you? Do you place your confidence in Christ? Have you submitted your life to him? We're reaching forward to the goal, and because of that, we're content. Do you? Do you know what the goal is? Why are you here? Why are you taking up space? Why are you breathing oxygen? What is your goal in life? Well, for us as Christians, it's not here. It's the next life because we find our home and our hope in heaven in the joy that is to come that will be revealed in us when Christ comes again. And so through the tools that God provides and the promises that he gives that are reserved only for his children, we guard our hearts and our minds through prayer and thanksgiving and meditation on the things that are right in our lives, knowing the good things that are to come. And when I look around this room, I see a a lot of joyous people who are content. Not because everything's right in your lives. I I know better than that. But because you have a perspective that looks to Christ for the answer for this and all things. And if you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian, this kind of contentment could be yours. But only if you're willing to come to Christ under his terms. And if you're already a Christian and you realize that Perhaps you've lost sight of what contentment in Christ is supposed to be. Perhaps you've let some of these contentment killers into your life. Well, you don't have to face that alone. Christ is with you. And even more, your brothers and sisters in Christ are here for you. We'll pray for you and do anything we can to help you. All you have to do is come now while together we stand.